know about you guys, but when I was young, in my teens, um, I was actually, I was the only son. I had two older sisters, but I had a, a cousin who was my best friend, and his family was pretty uh, dysfunctional. So my parents took guardianship of him when he was about 13 and I was 12, and he lived with us all the way through high school. He became like my brother. And we were, um, we kind of fancied ourselves as, as American frontiersmen at that age. And we were always doing things, mischievous things and different things. And one of the things, when they were building the interstate before it opened, it was a really nice road that was all done except the pavement. And we always had camp out, my cousin and I, and I had a horse. So one night, it was probably about one in the morning, we decided it would be really cool to get my horse and go for a ride on this road. So we just took off and left. And about two and a half hours later, we came home, and when we got to, our, to my house, we could see the flashing red lights from a long way away. We got back to the house, and the sheriff met us there because my parents had called him to go out looking for us. So that, I got a corrective lesson from that. <laughs> One other time, and this is a little more dangerous, but like I say, we, we considered ourselves frontiersmen and trappers. And we're at home one day, and my parents are both at work. And it was about 18 degrees, snowing a little bit. And we used to walk to this pond and go fishing. It was about four miles, not on roads. This is through woods and down the creeks, and there's no houses anywhere. We thought, you know, that would be really cool to trek down during the snow to this pond. And as we went, this is in the 70s when the big snowstorms. As we went, the snow got harder and the wind blew harder and it got colder. And we got to the pond and we started back and then we started to realize this is really getting cold. And it's really getting hard to see and walk in this snow. And we really did start to worry that, hey, we, we might not make it back. Nobody knew where we were. Now, we were pretty much normal, slightly mischievous young men. But when we found ourselves without immediate supervision, you know what we did? In our young teenage minds, we did what was right whatever we thought was right in our own minds. And that's what we see with, with uh, Israel. And that brings us, uh, can you bring up our memory verse? All right, let's say that together. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Chapter 5 ends... with the words, and the land had rest for 40 years. And we come now to the sixth chapter of Judges. And to the most, probably the most famous, or at least the most recognizable of the judges, Gideon. He's the fifth judge recorded. Follow, he follows Ophniel, Ehud, Shamgar, and Deborah. Now you notice some of the judges received a chapter. Some of the judges received a few verses. And some, like Tor Shamgar, they got one verse. But with Gideon, we get a more detailed information. 
we get more detailed information about his judgeship than any of the other judges, and we also get a more in-depth look at the depravity of Israel. Gideon receives almost three full chapters, six, seven, and eight. A couple weeks ago, during our life group, I asked our life group, um, how many of you have ever heard a sermon on the book of Judges where the judge wasn't the hero or the focus of the sermon? And they truthfully answered, most of them, they don't remember ever hearing a sermon on the book of Judges. <laughs> so, but if you remember, Brian, and, and what we're looking at is we're looking at the fact that the judge isn't the focus of the book. The focus of the book is what God is doing and how God and how we need a better deliverer, that these deliverers weren't complete. They weren't efficient. They weren't effective. And they lacked everything necessary to be a, a complete deliverer. We need a better deliverer. Our glimpse into Gideon's life as a judge certainly has bright spots. Gideon at times shows competency. He shows faith. He shows um, good work. But by the time we reach chapter 8, you're going to see that Gideon's life ends badly. And Brian will bring that sermon to you guys in a couple, to us in a couple weeks. We, like Israel, need a greater deliverer, one who not only can deliver us from sorrow and oppression and sadness, but ultimately one who can deliver us from the sin that separates us from God and the, the sin that leads to death. And we need a deliverer who can deliver us to a restored relationship with God. Let's pray before we get started. Father, we are thankful for your word. I pray, Lord, that you would that you would lead us as we walk through your word, that you would give us guidance and wisdom and direction. And Lord, we pray that what we learn wouldn't just simply be knowledge, but Lord, it would change the way that we behave. That Father, you would call us and lead us into a more faithful walk with you. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I usually don't have an ABI, but Brian always has an ABI, and that's kind of the way we look and the way we study. My ABI for this morning is this. God is always faithful and answers the cry of his children, even when they are unfaithful. So remember his mercies and follow him faithfully. My sermon this morning has four points, and I, I don't know. Are they up on the board? We don't have them? Okay, they're in your bulletin in the insert. A pastor was asked one time by his parishioner how many points his sermon had. He said, well, I hope it has at least one, so <laughs> we'll hope for that this morning. But the first section I want to look at is Israel and the Midianites, and that's in verses 1 through 10. And because of the amount of information, we're not going to go kind of verse by verse. A lot of this I'm just going to recap as we go along so that we can get through this. My sermons are normally about 20 minutes. And when I put this one together, I, Brian has said before that we're flying over judges at 30,000 feet. And a quick view, I told him that, well, we may this week have to fly a little lower and a little slower because there's a lot of information in Chapter 6. So we'll work through it, and we'll be done by Super Bowl time, I'm sure. <laughs> Israel and the Midianites. One of the things I was thinking as I was getting ready to preach this morning is the difference between what we're used to with Brian being in his 30s and me being, 
I'll be 70 in a few weeks. And that's the references that Brian makes. For those of us older in the audience, Brian references movies and books and video games from the late 90s and the 2000s. And most of us older folks are going, we have a kind of a blank stare. It's like, never watched that movie, never read that book. Well, today it's the opposite. You're going to get the 70-year-old's references. So you young people sitting there going, okay, never heard that. How many have seen the movie Groundhog Day? Oh, wow, pretty good section of people on that one. They got a lot of ads in the Super Bowl this year, by the way, dealing with that. How many have heard of Yogi Berra? Okay. Yogi Berra was, uh, he was a professional baseball player, catcher, and a manager for the New York Yankees. He was really known for being a great catcher. But Yogi Berra nowadays is known as much for his paradoxical um, and strange statements as he was for his baseball playing. And one of his statements was, it's like deja vu all over again. And that's where we are with Israel. We begin in verse 1 with Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It seems as though that when there was a ruler or a judge in Israel, Israel at least pretended to have a righteousness. And they pretended to be faithful in following God. But like my cousin and I, immediately when that judge ended and they were left to their own devices, they did what was right in their own mind. And they walked away from even pretending to be righteous. There was a say, there's a saying, I'm sure you've heard it, that life spinning out of control You've never heard a saying that life is spinning into control, because they don't. <laughs> Difficulties come and lives spin out of control, and that's what we see happening with Israel. And I think any time that we are without leadership, and when I'm talking leadership, I'm saying parents, teachers, coaches, bosses, the next one's kind of hard to say, but governments, and especially without God, lives begin to spin out of control. And then it, in, in that first section, you can feel the, the, the very weight of, of, of the verse in verse 1. And it says this, And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. The Lord gave them into, think about that for a minute, the Lord gave them into. That's a very strong, uh, intense verb. God gave them into the hands of Midian. Does that mean that God turned his back on Israel? That he's no longer covenantly faithful to them? Not a bit. He remains covenantly faithful forever to Israel. But what it does mean is that God will withdraw his protective hand and he will allow the consequences of their sinful behavior to play out in their life. And that's what we see happening with, with Israel here in the Midianites. A little history on the Midianites. Excuse me for having to drink so often. It may surprise you where the Midianites are from. So I wanted to share a little bit. The Midianites first show up in, in our Bible in chapter 22 of Genesis. 
And what Genesis 22 says is Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah, and she bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbah, and Shuath. Midian is a son of Abraham. Next time we read about the Midianites in a familiar story, if you remember the story of Joseph and his brothers were angry with him because he was the dad's favorite and they thought they came up with a way to get rid of him. They were going to kill him and Reuben, the old, his older brother, wasn't wanting to go along with it. So he thought of a plan that, well, we'll put him in a pit and then Reuben can sneak back later and rescue him. But before Reuben can get there, the tribe of the Midianites comes by and it's, they, it's the, they passed by and they drew Joseph up out and lifted him out of the pit and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver and they took him to Egypt. Midianites rescued Joseph out of the pit. The next time, another familiar story, if you remember the story of Balaam and his talking donkey, the, the leaders and the elders of Midian and Moab, they conspired to pay to pay Balaam to put a curse on Israel. So we see the Midianites playing a part in Israel's existence for a long time. Barak, uh, or Balak, and the elders of Midian. And then in, uh, we also know that Jethro, Moses' father-in-law in the book of Exodus, was from, he was a priest of Midian. So the Midians are often used in God's story. And it's interesting to note, in Joseph's story, we see God employ Midian for Israel's ultimate good. He rescued Gideon, or rescued uh, Joseph from the pit. And when Joseph's brothers, when they went to Egypt to, to see him and didn't recognize who he was, when they found out who it was, they were afraid. But Gideon, or Joseph said this. He said, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So God employed the Midianites in a positive fashion for Israel's good. We find now God also employing the Midianites in not so good a way against Israel. But it is ultimately still for the good of the Israelites. He brings the oppression of the Midianites upon the Israelites in order to turn their hearts back to worshiping him. In verses 2 through 6, we read, and, and th I thank Daryl for reading. He does so good with, with the, the Old Testament words and names. The hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and the people, because the people of Midian made Israel for themselves dens that are in the mountains and caves in the stronghold. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. And they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance Israel, no sheep or no donkey or no ox. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. They and their camels cannot be counted so that they laid waste to the land. Israel, it says, was brought very low. And Brian, last, uh, last week or the week before, he said, when we look at this, these, is, these, these are God's delivered people. God had mercy on them and heard their cry in Egypt and rescued them from Egypt and brought them out of the land of Egypt. 
and he brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey. And look at where they are. They're hiding in caves. They're oppressed. They're downtrodden. They're brought low. They're devastated. They're discouraged. They're depressed. They're sorrowful. They're hiding in cages. Or in caves, not cages, caves. But, you know, Israel shouldn't have been surprised. Listen to what, what um, it says in the book of um, Deuteronomy. Um, in chapter 28, verses 1 through 7. And for you, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of your Lord. Blessed shall you be in the city and shall you be in the field. Blessed shall the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. Then in verse 15, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and statutes that I command you today, then all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, cursed shall you be in the field, cursed shall you be in your basket and in the kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and when you go out. Then in verses 15 through 20, it goes on to say, the Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of all the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. And now listen specifically to verses 31. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat it. Your donkey shall be seized before your face, but, face, but you shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies, but there shall be no one to help you. A nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and all of your labors, and you shall only be oppressed and crushed continually, so that you are driven mad. Israel shouldn't have been caught off guard by what Midian was doing and what God was allowing Midian to do in order to turn them back. people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Unlike any other accounts in the book of Judges, Israel's crying out to God, but he doesn't immediately send a judge. He does something different. He sends a prophet who gives a somewhat detailed account of the deliverance from Egypt. And he recounts exactly what he did for Egypt and what God is telling Israel to remember my mercies, remember my grace, remember what I've done for you. And at the end of verse 10, if you look at, at the end of verse 10, I, it's a sad verse. God says, but you have not obeyed my voice. And when I read that, I get a sense of sorrow in God's voice, like the sorrow of a parent for a child who's gone astray. God is distraught that his nation has left him, has turned their back on him. 
Now, a prophet, when God sends a prophet to Israel, it, it wasn't usually good news for Israel. Um, usually the prophet would come, he would recount God's favor, he would recount God's mercy, and then immediately following that, there would be God's project or God's statement of this is what's going to happen to you. And there, it would be a sense of judgment that was going to come from God. Um, and if you want to see one of those, read the book of Jeremiah, and you see that God uh, is going to pour out his judgment on his unrepentant people. So when we read this account in Judges, it wouldn't be surprising if the next thing that we read was after the, the prophet reads this statement of God's mercy that God was going to pour out judgment, but he doesn't. And I think what we see, we see God's grace. God calls. He's getting ready to call a judge. God's steadfast love endures forever. We looked at Joshua, the book of Joshua, last spring. And what we learned was the book of Joshua wasn't about Joshua. It was about the faithfulness of God. And when we look at the book of Judges, we need to remember the book of Judges is not about judges. It's about the wondrous mercy of God and the grace of God that's poured out on his rebellious people. So what's our takeaway from this first session? The first thing that I want you to take away from this this morning is this. Being disconnected from God leads to sin and oppression. Brian shared last week in one of his messages that sin always takes you further than you intended to go. There's two other statements that follow that. The second one is sin always keeps you longer than you were wanting to stay. And the third one is sin always costs you more than you were really wanting to pay. Sin separates us from God. When we turn our back on God, sin and oppression immediately flow in. The life spirals out, spirals out of control. So what do we need? We need others to help keep us connected. How do we disconnect from God? When we disconnect from the people of God. That's why it is so vital that we are part of a church. It's so vital that we have a meaningful church membership that, that we connect uh, to, with one another when we connect together, it's for the strength, not only of me, but for all of us. And that's true. We can all say that. When we have our men's Bible study and prayer on Tuesday morning and our small groups meet, what a time of binding together. What a time of strengthening. What a time of keeping everyone connected to God. So we need to stay connected to God. To God. The second thing that I think we need to learn from this section is this. God is never idle concerning his children. In verse, the first verse of this chapter, where does it say God, where does it say they did evil? In the sight of the Lord. When they cried out to God, where was God? He was listening. God is never just sitting back allowing his children to wallow. If we are faithful, God is with us. He's encouraging us. He's directing us. He's equipping us. If we're unfaithful, he doesn't leave. He's still involved. And he's going to do whatever it takes to turn our hearts back to him. 
when we find ourselves in difficult situations, it's not because God has lost interest in us. God never loses interest in his children. He is always with us. He is always looking to direct us. Ryan and I were at a, uh, something one time, and I, I wrote down a quote from one of the guys there, and it was this. God often allows bad and difficult things to happen to us in order to produce something good in us. And we need to remember that. God's working in our life in those dark times, in those hard times, in those oppressing times, in those stressful times, in those discouraging times. God isn't absent. God is faithfully there. He's faithfully working to turn our hearts and redirect us back to him. And the third thing is, it's always good to cry out to the Lord. So often we feel that our sins are so great, or our attitude is so poor, or whatever, and we fail to cry out to God. We need to cry out to God. And God listens, and God hears. Where is he when we cry out? He's listening. Let's look at the second part of this. God calls his deliverer Gideon. This is, a section, or this is a scene that we find in this section. It's harvest time, and the Israelites, because of the past several years, they're fully aware what harvest time in Israel means. It means the Midianites are about to come. They're about to overrun them and wreak havoc upon their nation once again. And we find Gideon hiding in a wine press because of the fear that he has of the Midianite raiders. And he's trying to thresh wheat in the wine press. That's kind of a difficult thing to do. You, you, you press wine either in a pit or a deep basin, and they put the grapes in and they trod on them to, to, to extract the juice. Well, when you thresh wheat, they would build a platform up so that it was in the wind, and they would go up to the platform and they would throw the wheat in the air, and the, seed, the weight of the seeds would drop to the platform and the wind would blow the chaff away. Well, threshing wheat in the pit doesn't work too well. But that's where we, that's where we find Gideon um, when the story comes up to us in this. And you'll notice as we look through this, when you read it, that the text goes back and forth between the angel of the Lord and the Lord. And Brian shared with us a couple weeks ago, when the Bible states it as the angel of the Lord, that is the Lord. And those can be used interchangeable. If it's, if it's an angel, that could just be an angel, any angel. So the angel of the Lord appears sitting under the uh, oak tree at Terebinth, and he finds Gideon hiding in the wine press, and with what almost seems to me to be sarcasm, the angel says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And I'm not sure where Gideon was when the prophet of the Lord recounted the mercies of God when he led them out of Israel and he recounted Israel's rebellion and disobedience. But Gideon responds to me with almost incredulity. It's like, look around. I'm hiding in a wine press. Where have you been? Look at, the, look at the, what's been happening to us. Look at the oppression that's been on us for the last several years. Look at what we've endured. Look at, if you're with us, why has all this been happening? Where are all the wondrous deeds that our fathers told us about? And I kind of like it, the, the Lord 
in this section is totally unmoved by Gideon's passionate speech. He simply answers, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Do not I send you. Then follows a dialogue between the Lord and Gideon that closely correlates to when God called Moses. You remember when God called Moses, Moses responded with, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of Israel and out of Egypt? God responds, but I will be with you. Moses later says, I'm not a man of eloquent speech. I'm slow of speech. God responds, I will be with your mouth. Likewise, Gideon says, Lord, how can I save Israel from the hand of Midian? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. God responds, the same words, but I will be with you. It's the exact same thing that he told Moses. Gideon then responds, if I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who is speaking to me. Next, what we see next is a scene that's reminiscent, if you remember when Abraham, when God was ready to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham was there, and the Lord appeared to Abraham, and Abraham, recognizing that it was the Lord, said, let me fix you a morsel. And he, he got a calf, and he butchered the calf, and he baked some cakes, and he basically, it was a sacrificial meal because, because Abraham recognized this as the Lord. He was making a sacrifice. And we see the same exact thing with Gideon. Gideon says, he, takes, he, said, he said, Lord, let me, let me prepare for you a meal and I'll bring it out and serve it to you. And he goes, and, and just for the record, this isn't fast food. <laughs> Gideon goes to the herd, selects the goat, butchers the goat, cooks the goat, and it says he takes an ephah of flour. For you, you guys who bake, uh, you know how much an ephah is? 20 quarts. That is a lot of cakes. So Gideon prepares this meal. He brings it out, presents it to the angel, and the angel says, put it on the rock. The angel touches the rock with his staff, and it, just, it burns up the offering. And I love what Gideon says in verse 22. Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. Now, for you, for you older folks, that reminded me of Jeff, Jeff Foxworthy. Here's your sign. After Gideon assesses the situation, he remembers probably Exodus 33:20, when God said, you cannot see my face, for a man shall not see my face and live. Gideon, immediately after the angel disappears, realizes, man, this, this is a precarious situation I'm in. And he, he cries out to the Lord, alas, Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the angel of the Lord reassures Gideon, do not fear, for you shall not die. What do we take away from this section? First one is this, God calls the unexpected. He calls the meek, and he calls the lowly. Abraham wasn't looking for God. Abraham wasn't anything special when God called him. Moses was a murderer who didn't think he could speak very well. David, the least likely, and the last choice of Jesse's sons is the one that God chose to be king of Israel or king of Israel. 
Isaiah said, Woe is me, I am lost, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. Jeremiah said, I'm just a kid, you can't call me. Ehud, the guy that we looked at a couple weeks ago, the left-handed man from the right-handed tribe. Jesus called fishermen. Jesus called tax collectors. You see, God calls the unexpected. Someone said God doesn't call the able, he enables the called. I can share with you my story. When I was 28, I began to feel that I should be preaching, that God was calling me to a greater ministry. And I used to sit in the pews listening to the preacher thinking, I should do that. I should be doing that. That's something that I, I would like to do. In the same line, I'm battling this. When I was in high school, I did pretty well. I got mostly A's, and I was on, in all the college prep courses. When I became a sophomore, the first week into college prep English, they said I had to stand in front of an audience with a speech on the second week. You know where I went after class? To the principal's office and dropped college prep English to the lower English so I didn't have to stand in front of people and speak. Even now I stand before you. I fight, I fight anxiety constantly about standing and speaking in front of people. And I fight with things and I have excuses. The cancer that I had in my mouth and my missing teeth, it's harder to enunciate words. My, uh, I have to drink a lot because my mouth dries out. And I, I, my mind wants to make all these excuses of why God can't use me and why it can't be me. But it can. And the reason that it can be is because when, when God calls someone, the call always comes with this, I will be with you. There's nothing else necessary. When God says, I will be with you, there's nothing else necessary. God simply wants people, it's his authorization of us that enables us. It's not our skills or our strength or our status. It's God's authorization. When God called Gideon a mighty man of valor and said to him, go in this might of yours, it wasn't sarcasm. It was God recognizing what he would make Gideon to be. In, chapter, in verse 34, which we'll look at, it says, but the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. That's why Gideon became a mighty man of valor. And that's why Gideon was a mighty warrior. Let's look at the third section. Gideon's first work. Israel has strayed so far from God. This, this, is, a, this is, to me, an extremely sad commentary about Israel. It, it really is not good. In the Shema that, Ma had, that Moses had given to Israel in his instructions in Deuteronomy 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And then in the Ten Commandments he says, You shall have no other gods before me. God is absolutely committed to being a covenant God to Israel. But in that in that covenant God relationship, he demands to be exclusively the God of Israel. Israel, in doing what's right in their own eyes, has completely forsaken the worship of God. 
They've devoted themselves to Baal worship. Uh, if you're not aware of what Baal, Baal worship is, Baal is a fertility god. Uh, and it was believed that worshiping Baal uh, would ensure the fertile productivity of the people, of the livestock, and of the land. And the Asherah was the female counterpart of this fertility couple. And without becoming graphic and taking this into R rating or anything, in worshiping fertility gods, you can kind of in your mind make up what you think the activities of those worshiping fertility gods would engage in. And that's why there were temple prostitutes. That's what Israel is involved with when they're worshiping Baal. Um, they have completely forsaken what God had called them to. And now what God instructs Gideon to do, God is asking Gideon to do something that is going to totally debase and humiliate this worship of Baal. He tells Gideon to take the bull that your father has set apart that was to be offered to, or the bull that was set apart to be offered to Baal. Tear down the altar that your father has built to Baal. Pull down the Asherah beside it and take, the, take and build another altar to me. Take the bull that was supposed to be offered to Baal and slaughter it. Take the wood from the Asherah and use it to light the fire and sacrifice that bull to me. So Gideon does exactly what he is told to do. It says that he did it at night for fear of his family and for fear of the men of the city. And we see that in the scripture, in the, in the next part of it, we see that his fear is well found, founded by the response of the city the next morning. The, the men of the city almost seem frantic in trying to find out who did this. And they cried out, who has done this thing? As I thought about that, I thought, you know, we would hope for Israel when this incident happened that the question wouldn't be who did this. We would hope that Israel would have said, why has this happened? Why has this happened? Unfortunately, that isn't their response. The men discover that Gideon was the culprit, and they sought to kill him. And another thing that's interesting, and this is in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 6 to 11. And listen to what God's instructions were. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son or your daughter, or your wife, or you embrace a friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near or far from you, from the one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall you I pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones, because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery, and all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do such wickedness that is among you. I think of the song by Alanis Morissette, isn't, isn't it ironic? Israel should have been so passionately connected to God and so steadfastly worshiping him 
that anyone who didn't was the one who should have been sought out and chastised and according to the Old Testament, even put to death. But what do we find instead? We find that the people of Israel so impassionately committed to worshiping Baal that they seek to kill the deliverer that God sent to rescue them. Sounds kind of familiar to me of Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Peter said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hand of lawless men. We see Gideon's father comes to his rescue. Uh, it, it seems as though Gideon's father must have had his eyes somewhat open and remembered somewhat of what was right because he comes to Gideon's aid and protects Gideon and he says to the men chasing him, does Baal need to be defended? If Baal is a god, let him defend himself. And then in verse 33, we see the change. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east assemble and cross the Jordan. But the Spirit of the Lord clothes Gideon. He blows the trumpet, and the very people who sought Gideon's life assemble. The Abizarites, that's Joash, that's Gideon's father's family. The Abizarites, and all those who are seeking to kill him, now they gather with Manasseh and Asher and Zebulon and Naphtali, and they come together and prepare to defend Israel. What is it we learn from this section? The first thing we learn is that Israel can never return to genuine worship of God and at the same time worship Baal. They can't do both. They can't simultaneously worship two gods. And the first work given to Gideon by God was to destroy the remnants of Baal worship in Israel. And I think it's important and a point that we shouldn't overlook is that Gideon's first, wor first work took place in his father's house. The work of returning to the Lord begins with us in our homes. We need to worship God exclusively. God will never play the mistress, ever. He demands exclusive worship. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either we, he, he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot, not shouldn't, you cannot serve God and money. We cannot worship God in a genuine way while staying, still clinging to idols of our personal desire. And secondly, obedience to God, it sometimes might be costly. Gideon was obedient, and they sought to kill him. Being committed to living by the truth of God's word and faithfully following God and speaking out boldly for God, especially in today's world, and I had will bring, but I scratched that and put may, and I'm still not sure where I want to land but it will probably bring condemnation 
and ridicule and hatred toward us. So stand boldly for God. John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Jesus goes on to say in verse 26 of that, we're not alone. When we're faithful with God because he has left a helper, one to come alongside and strengthen us and encourage us and equip us. And we have that spirit. Let's look at this final Section, Gideon's Test of God, verses 36 to 40. Gideon exhibits a shaky faith. In verse 7, when we looked at that first thing, we find Gideon asking for a sign. And he asks for a sign for the reason, he said, so that I can know that it is God who is talking to me. And God answered that call for a sign. And God, and God then explained to Gideon what he wanted him to do. That should have removed all doubt for Gideon. God proved that it was him speaking. God told him what he expected him to do. But it isn't enough for Gideon. So he devises a test for God. And Gideon himself recognizes foolishness because he says, please don't be angry, but let me test you just one more time. And Gideon wants to take a fleece, and he says, I'm going to put the fleece out, and if the fleece is wet and the ground's dry, then I'll know it's you. I'll know that I can trust you. And it happens so. And then Gideon says, well, let me ask you one more time. Let me test you just one more time. And he says, I'm going to put the fleece out again. Let the fleece be dry and all the ground be wet. And that's exactly what happens. But you see, this test for Gideon, it isn't a test to, de to determine if it's God who's talking to him. He knows it's God who's talking to him. It isn't a test to determine what, what God's will is. God's already told him what his will is. What Gideon is doing, and he's questioning whether God can be trusted. Gideon's saying, can I really trust you? Deuteronomy 6.16 says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him at, at Massah. And what happened at Massah in the wilderness when Moses was leading them out of Israel, the Israelites became thirsty. They began quarreling with, with Moses. And Moses said, why do you quarrel with me and why do you test the Lord? He named that place Massah and Meribah because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or isn't he? You see, it's a question of can, we, can I trust God? Putting out a fleece is never a normal thing for a Christian to do nowadays. God has given us his word. He has given us his direction. We know his heart. We know his will. We know his call. We know his presence. And we have the Holy Spirit to assist us. We don't need fleeces. God could have, re God could have refused Gideon's foolish test, but he didn't. 
Why didn't he? Because God's love for his people overrides his aversion to being manipulated. We have a faithful God who always answers the cry of his children, even when they are unfaithful. So remember his mercies and follow him faithfully. Gideon, as well as all the other judges, are insufficient to be our ultimate deliverer. They are like palliative care and medicine. They can lessen the pain and they can remedy to some degree the current situation, but they are unable to cure the deadly disease that we have. They are a Band-Aid on the wound until the appearance of the authentic deliverer, the one who is able not only to lessen the pain and relieve our current distress, but the one who can cure the, the disease that plagues us. We have a heart disease, a sin problem that separates us from the God who loves us and keeps us in a state of rebellion toward him. God says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the authentic Savior. That's the one that we need. The story of Gideon isn't a story of God meeting Israel halfway. It's a picture of the God of Israel and the God of grace who goes the whole way for his chosen people. And he went the whole way for you and I in Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about what that means and how you can trust Christ, feel free to come forward during our closing song. And we have Rob or myself or, or Brian. Uh, we'd be happy to pray with you and talk with you and share with you. So let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the way that you bless us. We're thankful for the way that you are merciful to us. We're thankful that you are steadfast love endures to a thousand generations and that your mercy never ends. And we're thankful most of all that you have sent the authentic Savior, the only one that can finish the work of delivering your people from sin back to a restored relationship with you. And we ask that you would do your work in our hearts now. In Christ's name, amen.